United Lutheran Seminary presents the Seminary Explores podcast, conversations on faith, art, people, politics, theology, life, and more, with voices from around the corner and around the globe. Good day. Welcome to the Seminary Explores. Today, my guest is the Reverend Edward Smith, who is this year's Call to Lead Excellence in Parish Ministry Award winner. Welcome to the Seminary Explorers. Thank you. Well, uh, the reason you're here is that, um, that well, I, at least I would like to share, and hopefully you will share, your, uh, your years in ministry, uh, that you've come to this point in getting this, this distinguished award. Um, and you've had an interesting and multifaceted ministry vocation. That is, before we get into the specific ministries that you've been a part of, um, may I ask you to anticipate, how did you anticipate or did you anticipate such, an ad- such adventures uh, upon graduating from Gettysburg Seminary? Uh, interesting question, uh, Nelson. Uh, I could give you a one-word answer. No, I didn't anticipate any of this, but um, my intern year was in the Pocono Leisure Ministry. And I, didn't, I never interned at a church. And anything that happened there, you had to develop on your own. Uh, I had a campground services uh, every uh, Sunday at Timothy Lake Campground. And uh, new people coming in every week. So I had to visit all the campsites, invite them to worship service. Uh, I had services at Camelback Ski Area. We had to constantly hustle people to come. A honeymoon lodge, uh, uh, counseling for budgets, truck stop ministry, canoe ministry. And um, if anything happened, you had to develop it. So I didn't have any church experience. So, but we were building ski chapels and that kind of thing. And, and so when I got back to seminary, that was my internship. Oh, okay. Uh, in, in, in development and, and, and programming, oh. you know. So, um, yeah. Uh, so... You asked if I, when I got out, no. So um, I didn't anticipate that. But having a history in the Poconos, uh, when we started our first church, a church of uh, 43 people, uh, they never had a pastor since 1856 on their own, uh, they were open for us to do anything. And so we started serving three campgrounds uh, in the summer, second home development. We bought a bus uh, and sent it around and had vacation Bible school every Wednesday to meet people, I would just visit everybody in the community, invite them to church, because with 43 people and the total church budget at the time was $19,000, that we were into growth and development. And one interesting- Where was this, now where was this call? The the call was in uh, St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Marshall's Creek, East Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. And um, uh, it was an old German church in a swamp, a little building, and uh, as you came down, Business 209, there was a big sign in old black, gold leather, German script, St. Paul's Lutheran Church, turn right uh, 100 yards. Right. Well, we took that down and put up two big Snoopy dogs, sky blue, Snoopy dog in the middle, Fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, Fruits. And so people would say, oh, you go to the Snoopy dog church. So we did everything to to promote the congregation. And I would my, say, yeah. And then my wife starts a school, a parochial school, 
uh, at the church. And so we just, uh, we just, um, uh, you know, and we sponsored some Vietnamese, 21, we wanted to. So one thing just led into another. Uh, and um, so I was very dependent upon the secretary. She would say, Regatte Sunday's coming up. And I said, well, what's that? Uh-huh. She goes, we go outside and, and, and bless the seeds in the soil. Right. But nobody was farming in the church anymore. The church was growing because people were moving in from New York and Philadelphia and vacationing up there. So it was a, a perfect environment for someone from New York, right. metropolitan New York, uh, to have a ministry. Oh, okay. Uh, and how long, how long were you in that parish? 11 years. Oh, okay. Uh, after two years, because we had campgrounds, we, since I had interned in the area, uh, I knew that some of the campground owners and uh, the Pocono Raceway, and, um, uh, and so we worked a deal with the campgrounds that they gave us a little money, and we had lay people. And two years later, uh, we called an intern. And uh, St. Paul's never had a pastor before. Okay. And it was supposed to be a dual parish and with leisure ministry, and the other church backed out. And three new families had joined the church, and they wanted to call somebody, uh, and they did. And uh, after two years, John Hankey, who was very leading in moving the call process along, mm-hmm. uh, we wanted to call an intern. He says, well, we don't need an intern. And... Um, I said, John, you're absolutely right. We don't need an intern, but look at the uh, opportunity we can give them to experience a positive ministry. He says, well, I'm voting against it. And in, in my philosophy, no is not an answer. It's a reason for doing the same thing a little differently. Okay. But we needed the intern for the campgrounds and stuff. And we called the intern, and his, his, um, uh, his daughter ended up marrying Brian Hunter. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Good, 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 good. But, uh, you know, so you were there a number of years, but then I see that uh, you uh, went to Colorado. How do you go from the Poconos to Colorado? I never had any intention of going to Colorado, and I never had any intention of taking another church. The bishop would say, would you put your name in a discongregation. Right. And uh, I was really close to the call process. And the reason for that was uh, Cheryl, my wife, had started a wonderful school. My best friend from a college I played football with was a pastoral counselor at the church by this time. Uh, we built a new, new f- uh, church facility after expanding some classrooms, an education unit. And um, I got a call from the Bishop of Colorado uh, to put my name in out here, up in Dillon for ski ministry, and back east the the bishops control the call process. Right. And I, I thought I better call up my bishop, and I called up Doctor Tucson and said I got a call from the bishop if he wants me to come out and interview. So I decided to be open to the process. And he yelling at me. He said, "You're not going to Colorado. <laughs> you you want to call? I'll, I'll give you a call." I said, "I'm not going to Colorado." <laughs> I had nothing to do with this, you know. Right, right. It was the other bishop. And I got a letter of apology from Hagelin. But anyway, I thought, well, we'll go out there in January. We'll do some skiing. And um, in my dossier I filled out, I sent him a picture of me hitting golf balls off the back of a cruise ship. 
and what's your goal for the next three years? I said, run a three-hour marathon. And, spend. and so they never called me up. Okay. I, I don't blame them. But then the bishop sent my dossier up to um, Loveland, and Frank Carew, chairman of the call committee, worked for HP. He calls me up and said, we'd like to interview you. I said, did you read my dossier? He said, I did. I thought it was interesting. And I said, well, we're not coming to Colorado. You're wasting your time. Uh, he said, well, we went to talk to you anyway. We're looking for an associate. And I said, well, to make this fair, I'll pay for my wife's flight out there because we're not coming to Colorado. And I made that very clear to the call committee because my wife's family lived on the other side of the lake. Right. My parents came up in the summer. Cheryl had developed this wonderful school. Uh, our congregation was now 315 people. And um, uh, we, we were And the Holy Spirit, Nelson, has a way of overpowering everything. Indeed. And um, they just kept on coming back and back. And um, and I wanted to turn them down at every av avenue, but we got to the point that uh, just couldn't do it. And we accepted the call. And then going back to Colorado, this was after the second or third interview, right? Uh, to tell our congregation we're leaving. Uh, I never did that before. That's a difficult. That's a difficult process. Well, I didn't do it very well. During the sermon, uh, was a text with Paul wanted to go to Bithynia. He's called over to Macedonia. Right. It's going back and forth. I said, "Well, what difference is going to Macedonia over to Bithynia?" Cheryl and I have accepted a call to Loveland, Colorado. And you would have thought I dropped a bomb during the sermon. Uh, yes, yeah. I think as a parishioner, I would have felt that way. Yeah, as. My roommate often told me, Ed, you don't have very good social skills. <laughs> anyway, that's how that, but yeah, the, um, and I believe a coincidence and a, a, an opportunity is God's way of staying anonymous. And I've always tried to follow those opportunities that came along. Okay. Um, in, in reading some of the summary uh, of your uh, of your uh, years of ministry, you also became uh, involved in Habitat for Humanity. Uh, and how did that emerge for you? How did that come about? Nelson, again, initially when I moved to Colorado in '83, Tom Ford was the pastor of Our Savior's Lutheran Church in Fort Collins, very social ministry, you know. And when I came there, he uh, said, oh, you need to get involved with Habitat. I said, you know, love in the mortar joints, theology of the hammer. And I said, this is ridiculous. I wanted nothing to do with that. I said, you know, love in the mortar joints. And anyway, um, but a year later, he left his church. They kind of pushed him out because he was too social ministry minded. And he got hired by... Um, America's Georgia Millard Fuller, who was the director of Habitat, as their fundraiser. So in uh, 84, almost 85, Tom called me up and said, would you like to go to a Jimmy Carter build, the first one in Chicago, and there'll be 70 people, would you like to go along? Mm -hmm. And the opportunist that I am, I said, yeah, great. And so that's what happened. And I got involved with um, building of five houses, um, uh, Chuck Colson from uh, Prisons Fellowship was there. He had some prisoners from Mariana State Prison. Met Jimmy Carter, and uh, Oprah Winfrey showed up. 
and I didn't know who she was. She comes with a black, a red, a yellow dress on for publicity. Uh-huh. And I was in charge of like putting people to work. So I said, she's got to work. So I, I gave her a hammer and they said, that's over Wimper. I said, I don't care who she is. I don't know who this lady is. And then so she pounded a couple of nails into the thing and stopped. It was a publicity stunt. Oh my. But uh, anyway, um, and so when I came back, we, we called a meeting in, in Loveland and uh, invited Miller Fuller to come. And we immediately started our Habitat uh, affiliate. And because I had experience, they elected me president. And we uh, started by building on faith. Miller would say, you dig a hole in the ground, the Lord will provide. So we dug a hole in the ground. Someone bought us a lot. And people are saying, well, what are you doing? We're building a Habitat house. Well, can we help? The city forgave $500 uh, that first year, and we thanked them profusely. Okay. Thank you for your generous donation, you know. Right. And you, if you support people, everybody's invaluable in the community. So we, we, we thanked them profusely. And now they'll give us eight free building permits a year that's worth $35,000. So we have developed good support of the church, the community, and that kind of stuff. Oh, that, that's a fantastic story. But in the midst of all of this, what was the reaction of your congregation to this involvement? Because very, very often, you know, congregations want their pastors to stay with them or, you know, just c concerned with the local, uh, the local congregational life. You know, I'm not convinced that that's necessarily the truth. Uh, the congregation got very much involved. We started a warehouse, a thrift store. Uh, the first five directors of the thrift store I hired, you know, being president of a new organization, you can do what you want, you know. And um, uh, but the, the members participated, but the senior pastor was was totally against my involvement with Habitat. And we have a mutual ministry committee that would meet and process everything, mm -hmm. which is very helpful for the life of a congregation. Right. If someone has an issue of concern. And uh, we would meet. And um, he, in the process, uh, you know, he didn't want me to be involved with this outreach stuff. And, and he says, I work for the church. And I said, I work for God. And... That was an eye opener to some of the people on the committee. I work for God. I don't yeah, work yeah. for the church. <laughs> you know, I mean, the church is an instrument of God's right, grace right, and love. Indeed. Okay. So anyway, uh, but the, the members were very supportive of that and um, uh, everything else we did. Uh, and so, no, I never had any uh, problem with the members until I went to Nicaragua. <laughs> okay, that, I, I, and, and which, which, which brings me to my next question: that that your your years in ministry were not relegated to the United States, but that you went overseas or you know went outside of the United States. How did your involvement in Nic Nicaragua emerge? Well, as as my friends back here would say, being the competitive opportunist I am. Um, uh, I went to Nicaragua during the Contra War in 1986. Uh, Augsburg uh, College sponsored a study program. Okay. And uh, the Sandinistas at that time had done a great deal of uh, working throughout the, throughout the dictator Somoza that we had supported for years and, and extended universal education and health care to the people. 
and the war was going on, the Sandinistas, the whole country was armed. The Sandinistas didn't want anything to happen to us to provide an excuse. And then the Contras weren't going to shoot us. So uh, that was the thing. And then when we started our affiliate, Rocky Mountain Habitat went back there. And then about five or six years later, uh, Abi Gonzalez uh, asked me, he said, you want to come to Nicaragua? We're going to build a church. And I said, I want nothing to do with building a church in Nicaragua. I said, that's... Why was that? Why that response? I didn't think they needed a church. I said, but we will come and build some houses. And so we came, and then uh, they were building this Lutheran church in Kakali, and Abi was delayed in the houses, so our group had a couple days that we helped build a church and meet the people, and we started building houses in Nicaragua uh, from that time on with Habitat for Humanity. And since then, we've built over 60 houses in Nicaragua. Really? And how often do you go go to Nicaragua? We would go, uh, for th- over 30 years, we would bring large groups uh, from our church and other churches. The last several years, we had a group four years ago, uh, just before the, uh, the Ortega wanted to become dictator. Right. And the country was closed down, so that we had to cancel that group. But only six of us went. Uh, and then the last couple of years, it's been a small group. This summer, only eight will go. But sometimes we took, like once we had a group of 42 from our church, we brought some doctors and medical missions and whatever gifts people want to uh, share, mm-hmm. uh, we've let them do. Oh, okay. And where did you stay? Where did the group stay when they're down there? Uh, up in Somoto, which is a northern part of the country, uh, we have good friends with uh, we, the owner of the, the, the hotel, Danilo. Danilo. Uh, we stay at his hotel, and we work uh, in Somoto and also Kokali, where the Lutheran church is there, uh, building houses, uh, having a medical mission, a vacation Bible school, uh, a lot of things with the community. So uh, their church, the people in the church, uh, the pastor is totally supported by our congregation mm-hmm. and a lovely little congregation. My wife started a scholarship program uh, where over 30 students have been sent to university. And um, uh, we have a nurse that we support full time. We put a well in about uh, 14 years ago. And so one project leads to another, but however people want to use their gifts, uh, we allow it to happen. And one eye doctor comes down and he's got 300 pairs of eyeglasses that are donated. Right. And there's a little machine you look in, and uh, someone who has poor vision will look into this machine, and it'll immediately tell you what pair of glasses. And the person puts the glasses on, and people like working with it, and they go like, wow. Oh, wow. It's like an instant miracle. Exactly. Where when the doctors give someone a medicine, uh, there's no immediate change, but they'll come and wait for hours in a line to see the doctor. Yeah. And one thing we learned about the Nicaraguans, Nelson, they're thankful for everything. It's the second poorest country in the hemisphere. If you make four dollars um, a day, you're lucky. Okay. You know, but they thank God for everything. And um, 
we just develop a lot of friends over the years and uh, people down there. And then we go down there, 15 ki- young people will work on a Habitat house with us. Oh, fantastic. You know, um, and so it's one thing has led to the other. Indeed. Um, uh, again, again I, I was looking over your uh, biography and uh, I saw that you're also involved in law enforcement, uh, uh, in, I guess, in Colorado. Yeah. And, and could, I'd like to please elaborate on that involvement. When I got there, the Episcopal priest, Father Sathi Bunyan from India, says, um, oh, you should be a police chaplain. So, you know, in 39 years, I've served as a Loveland police chaplain with some other volunteer chaplains, and uh, uh, it's been a great experience. One thing about the police, it's a closed fraternity. They don't have a lot of friends in the community. You know? Right. But as a chaplain, you're part. So we, we had a, a basketball team. We played against the Broncos, fundraising. A softball team. They invited me. So, so a lot of my friends even today uh, have been, uh, you know, officers in the police department. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's been a great experience uh, doing that. But we do all the death notifications. Um, I, I served as a police chaplain for 39 years, even though I retired nine years ago from the church. Um, I just retired from that. Uh, after 39 years, you know, you get a little tired of being called out in the middle of the night. Someone died or, you know, but I thought that was enough. But uh, we do the death notifications and uh, some crisis intervention. But you're, you're really a part of the... The, the, the force. I could go into other things about uh, how it functions that can explain some of the, you know, you have a lot of some police violence and others aren't intervening. But right. like in Minnesota, right, that situation, exactly. they had two rookies and another guy. Uh, we would never intervene and correct the police officer in the line of duty. Okay. Okay. Um, and it's difficult for an officer to intervene and and correct another officer. You know, they tend to support each other. Now today with the crisis, it's you know you're supposed to, but as a chaplain, you know, if I'm in a scene with them, uh, the last thing I would do is violate their trust and and correct them because right. you're done. Mm, okay. They don't trust you. Okay. That's a whole different story. But uh, it was a good experience with uh, Lund and, and um, made a lot of good friends there. Mm-hmm. But, and as you, uh, the word that you used, uh, trust. And so over the years, you had to, oh, well, at the beginning, you had to earn their trust. Is it, would, would you say? Loveland has had one of the earliest and largest uh, police chaplain programs in the country. Okay. We are model for other things. And... Um, you never violate their trust. Um, uh, you get to know them, and the officers had a. Before I got there, uh, the police chaplain program was was in force, and it always went well. And they had a positive attitude about the police chaplaincy program. Oh, oh okay. And um, uh, and it continues to today, although. There are a lot less chaplains that we had in the past. Really? Um, any particular reason for, for the decrease, do you think? Well, some of us are retired, right. you know. 
uh, and um, uh, you know they we there was an incident in Loveland about something and um, and so just not as many chaplains as we had so those who are still there are on call more often oh, you know you get a pager and you're on call to um, respond to anything that they might need you for okay okay um, well in your in your in these years of, of ministry, um, is there any advice uh, or any suggestions that you might give to women and men who desire to consider ministry as a vocation? I think as a pastor, the most important thing is to visit with your people. Anybody who would visit St. Paul's or in, in the Poconos or Trinity Lutheran Church, a visitor, I would visit in their homes. Um, and also your members. Uh, the more you minister to them, the more uh, trust they build up. You know, coming out of New York, <laughs> I always say, if, I, if I'm not abusing you, I don't like you. <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> you sound uh, like a New Yorker. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think to survive in the ministry, you have to be operating with half a mind. And I qualify for that. But uh, if they think you're crazy, they leave you alone. But the most important thing is is building relationships, Nelson, getting to know them, uh, and giving them the opportunity to do things. You don't, uh, you know, people, people want to give, they want to participate, they want to have an opportunity to serve. And uh, you just facilitate and help them along with that. I think that certainly would be helpful to uh, to those students uh, and those beginning in ministry. Uh, uh, something to uh, to remember and, and to work with. Yeah, you you have a lot of power uh, influence as a pastor, but when you come into a congregation, uh, there's a lot of other people that have been involved in the life of the church. Exactly. You know? And, and you're not the boss. You're a partnership with them. Uh, and as you work with them, uh, you know, and they, they build up a thing. Uh, when I was interviewing in Colorado, uh, one of our members from the church was out there, Donna, and the call committee said to Donna, well, what's he like? And Donna said to the call committee, if you let him do what he wants, you'll be just fine. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, you know it's not that I do what I want, but even Gettysburg Seminary would basically allow me to uh, to, to do you know to be free, yeah. you know. And so uh, I think the most blessed thing you can do is be a pastor, you know, because be a pastor want, to the people. Yeah, well. Yeah. The, you have all these volunteer people who are working with you, helping you do your job. And not that you don't have any difficulties. You know, one story I should tell you, um, when I got back from Nicaragua in 1986, okay, I was so incensed, Nelson, and I'm the associate of the church, you know, that I preached a political sermon blasting Reagan. And, um, uh, a member of the congregation, Fred Anderson, a wonderful guy, was president of the Republican Denver legislature and uh, a good buddy of Reagan. 
And Nelson, he, um, after the sermon, you know, I wrote an article in the paper. I went to the schools and talked. He just freaked out in the vestibule. I'm sure. And, you know, long-time member of church. He stopped coming to church. Right. So two weeks later, I go to his house. I believe everybody's important to the body of Christ. Even if they don't agree with you, they all have gifts. So his wife, Ann, opens up the door and looks at me, and she's shocked that I'm there. She sends me into the lion's den. <laughs> I don't know what Daniel experienced. <laughs> and for 45 minutes, Fred Anderson is screaming at me. <laughs> okay. And uh, when he got exhausted, uh, what do you think I said to him after he stopped? I have no idea. I said, Fred, don't leave the church because of me. You were baptized here, you were confirmed here, and you will be here long after I'm gone. Six years later, when the senior pastor was 65, resigned, you know, uh, resigned, not retired, mm -hmm. uh, he had a little group to, to get rid of me, okay? Fred Anderson led the, the process of getting 350 names on a petition to consider me. Wow. Wow. And then, you know, I got to know Fred a little bit better, and we got to be good friends. But he, if it wasn't for Fred Anderson, I would not have been called a senior pastor. If Fred Anderson had left the church, exactly. you know, and so I think... Everybody's gifts uh, are important to the life of the church. And, and, and I think the worst thing we can do is, is if people want to leave, allow them to leave. Okay. You know, build that relationship. Okay. I can't believe our time is up, but uh, I want to thank you uh, for sharing your, your years of ministry and the adventures that you had. My guest today has been Pastor Edward Smith who is this year's Excellence in Parish Ministry Award recipient at the, Lutheran Theolo at the United uh, Lutheran Seminary on the Gettysburg campus. Can I say For one thing? Go ahead. We have excellent classmates. Uh, some of them are sitting right here in the background. Uh, I'm honored to receive the award, but there's so many other pastor recipients that have done so much uh, in, in parish ministry. Well, thank you for those words, and thank you for, for, for your years of ministry and your contribution, uh, not only to the church, but to the world. For the Seminary Explorers, this is Nelson Strobert. Have a good day. You have been listening to The Seminary Explorers, a production of United Lutheran Seminary with campuses in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We invite you to visit our website at unitedlutheranseminary.edu. All opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of United Lutheran Seminary or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America.